Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We're talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All right, we're going to get to it today. We're going to get to it from a from an inverted position. Um, my guest today is Dr. Todd Cashton. He is the co-author of The Upside of Your Dark Side. And we'll get on to that subject matter in one second. I want to give you a little bit of, of the background of Dr. Cashton. He is a professor of psychology and senior scientist at the Center for the Advancement of Well-Being at George Mason University. He is a world-recognized authority on the science of well-being, strengths, relationships, stress and anxiety. His honors include faculty member of the year and early career awards from the American Psychological Association, Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, as well as the International Society for Quality of Life Studies. He's published a ton of scholarly articles, hundreds of them, and authored several books, Curious, Discovering the Missing Ingredient to a Mindful Life, Designing Positive Psychology and Mindfulness, Acceptance and Positive Psychology, and his new book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. Welcome, Dr. Cashton. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Oh, this is this is great. We, I, I, I'm glad that we're bringing this up because everybody says, you do what for a living? You are an applied positive psychology coach. You are Mrs. Happiness. How annoying. And I love telling people, no, 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 no. That's really not what all of this is about. So here is a book that invites us to delve into the hard facts of life. That's right. I I agree with everything you just said. Well, good. That that makes my job actually really easy. But you argue that people are not 
whole. What is wholeness? To me, wholeness is being comfortable with all the different sides of your personality. And I like to think of personality as one of those 16-sided dies that used to come with Dungeons & Dragons board games, role-playing games. And there are some sides that are socially beloved. So if you think of your kindness, your compassionate side, your loving side, your bright, optimistic side, but there are other sides that are less socially accepted but are just as valuable in certain situations. And we dive into grandiose narcissism and selfishness and anger and anxiety and sadness and mindlessness. And when you're comfortable with exposing and harnessing all the sides of your personality to get the best possible outcome in situations that you end up in, you're talking about somebody that's experiencing wholeness. I like what you just said, and I'm going to just parrot what you said to me. I agree with everything you just said because <laughs> I think it's <laughs> I think it's really important that we show up for life aligned. You know, if we're standing in a situation where there is a social injustice, for example, and um, people think of us as being, in general, very kind, very happy, very optimistic, but there's something going down that is really not okay to sort of stand in your truth and be able to react appropriately to the situation, which might not always be so kind and so compassionate, but it might be just given the condition, is part of being in integrity and and whole, as you describe. And what's great about the example you gave is, because I want to make a big point, is when you are narcissistic or selfish doesn't mean you're a narcissistic person or a selfish person but what i love about your example is when you see in i mean i'm on a college campus right now and i know i'm raising three women who are now under seven and i'm on a campus where one in four women are going to be sexually assaulted and when i have this experience of social injustice when something happens or almost happens it's not even a momentary feeling of anger it's actually I am motivated not to retreat from the world, from that emotion when I am open to it and listening to it and expressing it, which doesn't mean rage. It doesn't mean I'm going to go out and harm, physically harm the, the assailants. What it means is I am going to be at the crux of motivation to make change. And it might be that anger might last for weeks, months, might even influence my entire life. And all of that is quote unquote positive because I'm making the world a better place than when before that emotion arose. And that is the the gist of everything that we talk about on this show, everything that really I, I believe that positive psychology hopes to be, you know, where we're living these lives of passion, a purpose, a place of meaning, which we talk about, you know, every week here. And this is what makes people great. You know, it's a call to yes. greatness. When you're saying, you know, to, to, to be whole, to embrace those parts of yourselves, you know, the kind, sweet, gentle, loving, uh, empathic, compassionate side, and then also perhaps these more gritty sides or um, sides of ourselves and, and nature that society doesn't necessarily deem as sweet. But it does make us um, stand up and own it and make change. You know... I think about, you You open up talking about people that are positive psychologists, happiness coaches, the happiness consultant industry and business is happening right now. And I think to myself, 
you know, what if George Patton had been exposed to a happiness consultant that came into the army? And what if, you know, Steve Jobs had been exposed to a happiness consultant when he was in Apple or Pixar? And you realize that the springboard to the highest peaks do not go through a linear route through positivity and universal love at all times. And if you even listen to the Dalai Lama, who is the biggest proponent of compassion and love will change the world, if you listen to a very long conversation with him, he will talk about being aghast at a number of people and a number of countries and a number of traditions that are happening around the world. So in this message of love and compassion, he was, he was upset about you know, New Orleans and the amount of licentiousness and, you know, and free-form jazz and love that was happening there, that he wasn't that upset when they had Hurricane Katrina. And when, you know, when it comes to China, it took him years to develop a sense of forgiveness where he could attempt to get on the world stage and try to, you know, reduce geopolitical conflict. And, you know, one of the things that I strongly believe, which, which was the motivation to write this book, was that if we want to change the world, and I think a lot of your listeners do, what, and because changing the world is raising good, healthy kids, you know, um, being a teacher, you know, um, being a crossing guard, being a librarian that exposes somebody someplace to a book that serendipitously puts them in a different direction in life. If we want to change the world, whether it's reducing conflict, um, having more emotionally intelligent leaders, having more creativity taught in the schools and valued, we have to see people as they are, not as we want them to be or not as we would like them to be. And when we, when we, we filter out sides of the personality, such as the angry side, the quarrelsome side, the narcissistic side, we don't see people as they are. And our kids don't have any real role models that they can actually follow. Mm, you make a very, very good point about the role models for the children. I am the parent of two teenagers, one who is college-bound next year. And we do have this conversation about, you know, a generalized conversation around the dinner table about this very issue. You know, what, what role models do young people have today? You know, you have the one side that is the compassionate, loving kindness. You know, my kids call it the group hug, you know, the kumbaya circle. And then you have this political circle that is striving to make a change in the world, perhaps with a, a, a more loud, strident voice. But who do the kids have? You know, who do the children really have? What is a role model for your, your seven-year-olds, your little ones, for example? Yeah. I mean, one of my dreams, this is the, this is the, the long road for me, is to create a curriculum for the schools where you teach people about the role of Thomas Jefferson, the Martin Luther King, the Martha Grahams, the Picassos, but you expose all their ugly vulnerabilities and, and failings as well, right? Martin Luther King had, you know, cheated on his wife, and Mahatma Gandhi had a horrible relationship with his son. Picasso, you know, is known for, you know, having a horrible relationship with all of his kids. Is that when you do this, you don't bring them down off the pedestal. You make them a, you make that great attainment possible because you're like, oh my God, they're human. And they, and they have all of these vulnerabilities and weaknesses just like me. And not only do I resemble them, but I actually have strengths that they don't, I see that they don't even possess versus they're untouchable. And, they're, and they don't resemble, we, we've, we've cleaned them up so they don't resemble a normal human being anymore. 
You know, we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, I would love to carry on with this subject about the perfection and what, you know, the perfection really is something that is very highly overrated in our society or the, the uh, desire to be perfect. We're going to that break. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with my guest today, Dr. Todd Cashton, and you can find out more about the book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, co-written with uh, Dr. Todd Cashden and Dr. Robert Biswastiner, who's been a guest on this show several times. Please visit ToddCashden.com on Twitter at Todd Cashden and on Facebook. It is Todd B, as in boy, Cashden. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I have Dr. Todd Cashden in the house. He is the co-author of The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self or Your Pretty Self or Your Perfect Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. So, Todd, right before the break, we got into this discussion about mentorship, mentoring children, mentoring others, and this notion of perfection came up in the conversation, that when we study uh, public figures, um, historical figures who have done great things in the world, and you mentioned uh, Martin Luther King, you mentioned George Patton, you mentioned even Martha Graham, but all of these people had flawed characters in some way. That's right. And why is it important to teach the whole truth, the whole picture? You know, 
as a scientist, we've been dissecting of what are the characteristics that lead people to healthy relationships, be able to accomplish great things, um, harness their talents and potentials and strengths. And one of the things that ends up being a big one is perspective taking is, you know, you know, one of the reasons that people have a hard time with close relationships and whether it's mentorships, whether it's peer relationships, whether it's romantic relationships, is that they don't want to get hurt. And one of, the, one of the reasons that we get hurt is because I can understand, and I've seen so many people have been hurt before, so I can understand that. And then if you take it a step further, which is, well, if I can understand your sorrows and joys, why does it hurt? It hurts because I can, I can adopt anyone's perspective and no other creature has this ability. I mean, I can say, you know, Lisa, if you had a hot dog yesterday for breakfast and I had eggs and today was yesterday, if I were you and you were me, what would I be eating? And I could say a hot dog. And that's no other creature has amazing cognitive capacity. And, and perspective taking allows us to form this glue with other people. And as soon as we, assume, we, we ask for perfection of people, perspective taking gets blocked because I can't see your perspective because in my head, countless times per day, my mind is telling me things I don't want to hear. My mind is saying, you can't do this. Everyone notices that you're anxious. You shouldn't write a book until you actually have 20 years of of research under your belt. You're not smart enough. You're too boring to be on radio. And if you listen to everything your brain says, or even just a percentage of it, you can't <laughs> possibly take the perspective of someone who's trying to come across as being perfect. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm giggling because I often tell clients, you know, you can't believe everything you think. If you believed everything that you thought, you'd be even a bigger mess. I'd be a bigger mess. I wouldn't leave my house. You know, it's, we're, we're, we're more powerful creatures mentally than we give ourselves credit for. And that really begs, you know, to dive into this discussion about, you know, self, self-perception. And, and, you know, what do we do about it? How do we sort of put that talk aside and, and, and jump into life? Which this challenges a lot of people. No, it is. And, and for other people, it could seem so obvious that they miss how important this message is. You know, one of the things that connects us, and, and if, if, we, if all of us could probably wish we can go back to our awkward teenage years when our face was exploding with pimples and, our, and we were elongating to the point of we, didn't, we couldn't take a photo between the age of 12 and 16, that during <laughs> those years, we, we did not know that when you expose your pain and vulnerability, the big secret is everybody has the same secret. Nobody feels comfortable in their skin. And if only we could go back and just try, instead of trying to, to white-knuckle our way through and hide all of our disappointments and worries and anxieties and insecurities and say, you know what? Like, I don't know. I have no idea what I'm, going to, what I'm going to say to this person either. And I have no idea how I'm going to ask that person out that your friends would say, me neither, that nobody had the answer. But we have this memory that some people knew the answer, the cool kids, and other kids were sort of confused, and other ones had no skills, and yet all of us were in the same boat, and we all are. It's that we'll just have tons of flaws, tons of insecurities, and, and tons of concerns. And when we expose that 
maintain the social glue is tighter than anything that could be shared in terms of creative accomplishments that brings people together. Amen. You know, you've just hit on something that is probably one of the most important aspects to talk about in any kind of therapeutic relationship or recovery process uh, from trauma or adversity or challenges. I think that this hits the nail on the head about we're all just working to get through our lives. We're all challenged. And in fact, we're more unified in our suffering probably than in our joy. Yes. No question. I mean, you know, there's some great research showing where when you have kids that are on the autism spectrum or are physically handicapped, and the question is, how do you get other kids to include them? Now, what you, you have the vestiges of the 70s self-esteem movement, which is we're going to force it. You know, we're going to punish you and put you in detention or in school suspension if you're mean to other kids. Well, that's that's great for the short term in terms of getting people away from each other so they don't harm each other. But you haven't improved the relationship. You've just made it worse. And what researchers have found is if you create tasks where everybody's got the piece of the puzzle and they require those other perspectives to finish it, they recognize that everybody's an asset. And, that, and once they give their piece of information, a kid that looks different physically, acts different mentally, or just, or just less intelligent than the other ones in the room, because somebody's got to be the least intelligent person in the room. But when they have a piece of information that other people need, they start to recognize very quickly that there are other assets there, and they're not a one-dimensional character. And so it's not about being politically correct. It's not about forcing goodness. It's about how do we recognize that the, that the fastest and most efficient way to being creative and innovative and understanding the complexity of the world is taking the perspective of people that have lenses that you'll never get yourself. Mm. I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> That's going to be my line, too. <laughs> but you started it. No, I, I really do. I mean, I'm saying it facetiously, but I do mean it. I want to talk a little bit about the yucky, ugly underbelly of, of human emotion. You know, the... Um, the discomfort, the stuff that none of us likes to deal with, and why we've become, in a certain sense, wusses. Sure. You know, um, well, let me just give an example of, you know, I, I think that people prematurely rule out a great number of emotional states because they don't feel good, and you think that other people don't want to be around you if you're going to expose them, right? If, I just had a barbecue for the launch of this book this weekend, and I saw, you know, I saw someone that was clearly, you know, they just had their B game, right? They're not even an anxious person or anything. There's no kind of attribution. They just, sometimes you go out on a Friday, Saturday night, you got your B game. And I just put my arm around him, and I said, listen, you got your, I said to them, you got your B game. I've been there. I just want you to know, I just needed you here. I wanted to look around like a great grandfather and see all my friends here at the same place. And that's it. We had a big hug. She wasn't in the mood to talk. She wasn't herself. And I, was saying, and I wasn't trying to take away her pain. I wasn't trying to get rid of it. I was saying, listen, we've all been there. Don't, oh, I, I, I brought you here because I love you and I, want you, I wanted you here. But I didn't say that. I just made it very clear. And, you know, these, what, so what does her anxiety do that's healthy that I'm saying there's an upside to the dark side? Her anxiety, for whatever reason, whatever led to it in this moment, it makes her want to seek safety. 
It makes you it makes you want to seek out and search all the possibilities of danger there are in this party. And all of us have been in a situation where we've been socially anxious, worried about being our character flaws might be exposed, and they might we might be evaluated, and we might be rejected and ostracized. And when you're in this moment, in this moment, it's actually a little bit adaptive. Maybe there's something that actually she wanted to talk about that she's not talking about, but it was my party. I didn't want to go there. Is that she's now her emotion of anxiety is communicating that I should be weary of possibility that the group might not be cool with who I am and how attractive I am right now. And so I'm going to put my guard up temporarily. And when she feels more comfortable in her skin, or if I create a safe ground for her, we can have that conversation and realize that whatever it is, it's probably not so bad. And I've probably got a worse story to match for it. But it's in, a, in the moment, it's an adaptive emotion. It reminds us that except for our close inner circle. And if you were lucky to have really good caregivers or parents when you were young, most relationships often are pretty fickle. And so it's good to recognize, is this someone that's trustworthy and reliable or not? And anxiety is our automatic reflexive signal that there's a question of trust in the air. And I'm glad I have that. And I actually, I'm glad when people on my, my team of 40 people have that emotion because it tells me, listen, I've got to build trust with him. So there's a, there's a short term hurts, middle term and long term, awesome. Yeah, I, I like how you've just described this 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 situation with this person because many of us, you know, we show up and we try and put our best face forward in life, and what's not always congruent to what's going on beneath the surface, and. We've also come, and that's on the one hand, and on the other hand, we're going to go to a break in a minute. I've just gotten gotten the word here. I'm talking in stream of consciousness. But on the other hand, we've gotten so used to being comfortable in our lives that when bad stuff happens or uncomfortable stuff happens, we are not too good at working with that. And I think that that's a part of the conversation that you and I should be having. You know, what's up with that? Have we lost our, 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 the muscle, the, the grittiness, the chutzpah that, that, that our parents had? Yes. Yeah. There's, in the past 20 years, there's been a cultural shift, particularly in the United States, where people are actually psychologically weaker. And part of the reason, part of the reason, so, you're, so the listeners don't go crazy on me, is that we have become so immune to physical discomfort because there are so many tools that we can use and purchase and get that we're, we try to be so physically comfortable that actually our bodies are often a signal to ourselves that discomfort physically, mentally, and emotionally is actually a bad thing to avoid. And the more that we obsess about being physically comfortable, it actually has an influence on our psychological tolerance for pain, uncertainty, volatility, complexity, and unfortunately, everything that the future is about, which is we don't know what's going to happen. Hold that thought. Let's create a little discomfort and go to break and let people wait for it. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Todd B. Cashden. We'll be right back. Here come those tunes. 
We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you are just joining us now, I urge you to download this as a podcast and share it generously. Why? Because I'm talking with Dr. Todd Cashton, who is the co-author of The Upside of Your Dark Side, along with Dr. Robert Biswastiner. And we're talking about why being your whole self, not just your good self in air quotes, drives success and fulfillment. And before the break, we got into this conversation about comfort addiction, really is what it's called, and about how we are so adverse to being in the slightest bit ill at ease with ourselves that we've developed a whole lot of coping mechanisms, which Dr. Cashin is going to share with us, that um, we're using to deal with not being able to deal with stress or distress. And I see it every day in my practice. I'm sure you see it multiple times a day as well. One of the most interesting studies that I think our lab, my research lab has produced, is to figure out what separates people that are and I'm talking about adults in the community, not those weird, bizarre creatures called college students. What <laughs> separates people that have that are psychologically healthy from those that have an anxiety disorder? And what we found was, and we had everyone carry around, you know, a smartphone, and we beat them eight times a day to get their realize what's happening. And what we, so we had people who are suffering from social anxiety disorder, um, a fear a chronic fear of being rejected and judged by other people, such that they weren't even socializing and healthy people. And, and what we found was there was no difference between healthy people and people with an anxiety disorder on their anxiety when socializing, which dif- disagrees with everything that this disorder is supposed to be about. And there was no difference in the amount of, of distress in their lives on a day-to-day basis. The major difference that separated these two groups, healthy people and people with an anxiety disorder, is that the people with the anxiety disorder went, were unwilling to be in contact when, with their anxious thoughts and feelings when they arose. They would go out of their way to try to neutralize them, change them to be something more positive, 
drink themselves into oblivion, exercise so they would just ex- try to exercise it off, or even something as healthy as having sex as a tool not to connect with someone, not to have this, you know, this amazing physically, aesthetically beautiful experience, but to get rid of their anxiety. And when you do that, when you're unwilling to be in contact with the stress, you cannot get out of your head and back into your life. You end up numbing yourself to the most meaningful, pleasurable moments. You can't just get rid of the anxiety. You get rid of just you get rid of feeling, and that's what we discovered. And that's what I see every day. I, you know, I um, I work with a lot of people in addiction recovery, and we've had this discussion about really distraction addiction. How it's impossible for us to just sit and be with our ourselves and our feelings and what comes up. That every single one of us possesses a mighty little device, which I'm sure yours is sitting right next to you. Mine is that is like the perfect um, companion when we are feeling discomfort. You know, that little phone that does everything can distract us from our lives and take us away from even savoring the good moments. You know, forget even the bad moments. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The last book that I wrote was called Curious. And the thing that I bemoan the most about writing that book is I never wrote a chapter about the value of boredom. And, you know, there's... It's so, you know, I think of all the college students that I meet as I teach my classes who are uncomfortable or unwilling to just be by themselves online at the grocery store and online at the movie theater or waiting for a bus or just walking from point A to point B and they have to pull out a smartphone. And what happens is when you do that, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to get upset about, you know, the beauty of having access to data that I could look up, you know, information of the civil war how did it affect people in Madagascar? What I'm saying is that when we lose those moments of self-reflection, what does that do to our personal growth as it aggregates over the course of time? And I think that one thing that happens over days and weeks and months and years of not allowing time to be physically and mentally available with no other external stimulation to distract us is we don't get to know ourselves. We don't have a good language to describe what emotions we're feeling. We don't have a good idea in terms of why am I going to college? Why am I in this line of work? Is my relationship satisfactory? Um, what, can, what am I contributing to my friendships that allows them to be their best possible incarnation? You know, these are tough questions, and you, there's no quick answers, and it requires us to actually, you know, to take some serious reflection time. And, and do you make space for that? If you don't, you're going to need coaches, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists who are going to guide you. But these are things you could do yourself. Agreed. And what are, what are some simple, easy steps that we can share with the listeners um, to enable them to simply just make more space and awareness in their lives? And we don't mean it like in a, a pat, you know, self-help ritual. We mean like serious stuff that you can just simply do immediately to put into effect? I mean, one of the, I mean, one of the first things that, that I think is you have to stop thinking from the neck, from the, the neck up and start working from the neck down is we know it's called embodiment in the field, cognitive embodiment in the field of psychology, which is jargon just to make us sound smart. 
But what this means is, is how our physical body reacts to situations, influences our thoughts and feelings. And so if we're not comfortable in our body, if we're not fit in terms of a strong cardiovascular system, if we don't have strong lung capacity, we will actually have all of these false signals that we are, um, you know, anxious and uncomfortable in the world when really it's our body is not strong. And conversely, when we make our body more strong and agile and have physical balance, I mean, could you balance on a balance board back and forth without falling off and have a strong spine? Is when you do this, you actually, it carries over. So it's when you feel physically grounded, standing, physically grounded such that with a posture, with your legs apart and your knees bent so that someone couldn't push you over, you actually psychologically feel stronger, tougher, and have greater ability to withstand and understand difficult thoughts and feelings. And so making sure that it's neck up and neck down is an important first tip for improving your well-being. I love that. And the word that popped into my mind or words that popped in my mind when you were talking was this sense of being self-possessed and not in a selfish way, but really being being in your body, being comfortable in your own skin. And we are we're not taught that how to be comfortable in our own skin. Yeah, which leads to other strategies. You know, and there's tons of what I'm, what I'm really talking about is small behavioral experiments. Like, treat your life like a scientist. Nobody knows how to live a good life. Nobody knows the secret to being a good parent. Nobody knows how to parent. This is actually a relatively new phenomenon because it's only the last 70 years that your kids didn't work on the farm with you. So in 70 years, nobody has figured this out. And don't trust any of us experts who say we do. We do little small behavioral experiments. So, you know, express an unpopular idea and see what happens. Notice how you can alter people's, other people's emotional reactions. Notice when you get angry, when you express it um, with your fist, when your fist clenched or your face, you know, in a contorted, how that affects other people's feelings and behavior versus when you just say it very calmly. You know what? I don't like the way you're talking to me. Notice the difference in terms of how you affect other people. When you start doing this, where you express unpopular emotions and express unpopular ideas, and you jot mental notes in terms of how does it affect and influence and persuade other people. And you learn this. Um, this is how you get better at navigating your social world. And there's, there's small experiments. And normally, we just we move around, we react, we read, we react, and we just go through this quick cycle of having the same types of interactions over and over. And what I'm saying is just... Uh, you don't have to whip out a notebook, but mentally you should be jotting down of like, oh, if I cry, people don't run away from me. They run towards me, right? Do, but does, do you remember the last three times you cried, how people reacted to you with a tear versus without tears? You know, just understanding this cause and effect relationship with other people is an important step to getting towards well-being. I like this. Expressing unpopular emotions. And why do, why do we have negative emotions, for example? Like, let's talk about that. I mean, why even have them? What purpose do they serve? So I like to go back to Maslow's pyramid, which 
for some strange reason, is the most popular image on all of Google when you bring up psychology. And the thing about it is, Maslow is a brilliant man, but he got this wrong. And there's actually, you can create a new pyramid based on what we've learned about evolutionary biology and psychology, which helps us understand why we have negative emotions. And so instead of at the top being self-actualization and this great creative accomplishments that only 10% of humans will ever attain, think of a pyramid where actually you have all of these different functional problems tens of thousands of years ago that humans had to deal with that this is what our brains are designed for. And I'm going to just list a few of them because once you realize these problems that our brain was designed to solve, you start to recognize why we have negative emotions. So one is to have status, which is so that I can have access to food, access to someone I can mate with. Another is affiliation. I'm going to be more likely to survive the weather. I'm more likely to survive danger if I have a group, a tribe that I can connect with. I can find a mate so I can pass on my genes. I can retain that mate, which means I have to fight off people that are trying to steal or poach my mate from me. And then for some people, you're talking about parental investment, investing in your children so that my genes in my kids get to survive another day, month, year, 10 years. And now all of a sudden you start to realize, well, now I know where anger comes from. Someone's trying to take my mate. Someone's trying to bother and interfere with my kid's learning. Um, someone's trying to prevent me from getting access to food. I have anxiety. The group, the group looks like they're starting to act differently around me. I'm not, maybe I'm paranoid, maybe I'm not. But if I lose the group, I will not survive three days out in the rain and the lightning. Our brains were evolved from these systematic functional problems. And unfortunately, the software hasn't been upgraded in tens of thousands of years. And so we have the same brain responding to the same cues that remind us of these problems. Do I have food? Do I have resources? Do I have enough social status where I can get access to what I want? Can I find a mate? Can I find friends? Can I maintain friendships? Can I, can I be a good parent? And Dr. Todd Cashin and I, I'm going to jump in anxiety. here because I'm going to take you and me and our reptilian brains off for a quick little break. The book is The Upside of Your Dark Side with Dr. Todd Cashin, co-written with Dr. Robert Biswas-Diener. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, 
thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, you can download this podcast on iTunes or any one of our many purveyors of our podcasts. Um, The book we're talking about today is The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. And we have Dr. Todd Cajun in the house, and we're talking about negative emotions on a positive psychology show. Imagine that. So Todd, prior to the break, we were talking about where negative emotions came from, really about survival skills and very primitive kinds of behaviors that we had back in the primal day that drive these emotions. And you said the operating system has not been updated. That's right. So what are some ways that we can be more cognizant when we have negative emotion and actually use that negative emotion in a way that is constructive as opposed to destructive? Well, two things will help us not just tolerate but harness our negative emotions. One is we need to develop or build a better emotional vocabulary. You know, when you're in kindergarten, you might have had that that poster on the wall, which had, you know, dozens of different emotions and facial expressions and the label underneath it. And we sort of assume that adults are really good at picking apart what emotions someone else feels and what they feel. And what you find is there's great variability, just like there's great variability in people's, you know, analytic skills. And most of us need to be better. You know, if you think about your coworkers at the end of a week, the majority of them usually describe, when you ask them how was their week, and it was a bad one, they say, I'm, I'm overwhelmed, I'm stressed, I'm upset. When you describe it in this nebulous, abstract way, there's nobody going to handhold or a foothold in terms of what am I being motivated to do and what situations drove me to feel upset. But if someone says, I feel a little bit of anxiety, a ton of anger, and actually a, a more guilt than I felt in weeks. Now all of a sudden I have inroads into what's motivating me right now, what courses of actions to take. Because guilt means I must have done something that upset someone else and I wish I could have done it differently and I'll get another chance. Now I can work with that. I can think through of, okay, do I apologize the next time I see them? Can I write them an email? Even better, a handwritten letter. Um, Can I offer them um, a probationary period where, listen, the next three times you see me and we get into an argument, I promise I am not going to bring up um, that you were an orphan when you were a kid. That was was horrible of me. That was bad of me. won't happen again. 
guilt, if you say you feel guilty, I can work with that. If you say you're stressed, you're more susceptible to binge drinking, binge eating, cutting yourself, avoiding other people because you can't work with that. So emotional vocabulary, building it is an important first step. That makes perfect sense. And it's often what a client will say to you when they first walk in the office is, you know, I'm feeling stressed or anxious. And then when you dig a little deeper, you know, and and get to what lies underneath that first level of emotion, it's almost always what you just described, that there's guilt or shame or um, undisclosed grief over something that, that was never talked about before. And once you start identifying that and are able to talk about that in a, in a constructive way, you're getting somewhere. Progress can be made. Yes. Yeah, and it's something that we can do just by starting to keep track of when we're stressed, what am I actually feeling? You know, what is it, what's it feel like physiologically? when I'm anxious versus angry. And I, I want to jump in here and add that you don't need a bunch of credentials after your name to practice this. This is the beauty of what we're talking about. This is real life, real world ways of living that are just going to make it easier with practice. Yeah. You know, here I am, I'm one of the people running a clinical psychology PhD program. And my big belief right now is therapy without therapists. And I love, you know, all these health, health smartphone apps that are just giving, as you're saying, they're just small tips to make inroads into difficult situations. I mean, one of the things we know is if you, the more that you believe that anger has value, it actually has more value. And we're not talking about the, the secret or the law of attraction. We're talking about if you believe that anger is useful in negotiating with your friends where to go out for dinner or um, dealing with conflicts with your family members over you know what you're going to do this summer vacation. And we're not talking about rage. We're talking maybe irritation. Maybe we're talking about um, you know just, just being... Um, annoyed is when you're able to express it and you feel that it's useful, it becomes effective because it influences the way that you express it. And when you can express anger, because you can express anger and sadness and anxiety in a mindful or an unmindful way. Mindfulness is not about getting rid of these emotions or neutralizing them. It's about seeing them for what they are and taking what's called right action. That's what mindfulness is supposed to do. And somehow in the West, in the United States, it's been warped into, I'm going to take yoga classes so I feel less anxious and depressed. Well, that's good luck because after you're done, you can't take your yoga mat into work and pull it out and do downward dog when someone says that your idea sucks during a brainstorming meeting. <laughs> uh, you're right. I'm, I, I'm giggling because I, you know, I have the image of, you know, chanting the downward dog coming out of class but then I also hold this image of taking the yoga off the mat you know and taking that practice into the world in a different way so the yoga becomes something of a of a dynamic action you know how am I going to be with myself when I'm pissed off am I going to own it am I going to express it am I going to do something of value with it or am I going to let it own me right and this is where mindfulness is a fantastic intervention for really any emotion, positive or negative. 
Absolutely. And, and I think the, the big message, take-home message with this particular segment that I want to say with that is do not use mindfulness to get rid of uncomfortable emotions. It's to be a curious scientist exploring what's going on in your mind. Because as soon as you make it, as soon as you make it, it's no different than big pharma of just popping some pills. It's this, you're, you're escaping stressful situations, and that's where the cycle starts, where you end up having, as you're describing, um, your stress ends up eating you alive. There is a, a, a phrase that I love. It's consider the uses of adversity. That, you know, when we look at all of the uncomfortable stuff that we want to avoid or numb out with either our devices or our distractions or other thoughts or other people, when we really just say, okay, well, this, this feeling is just a feeling. Let me, let me investigate this a little further and become more of a witness of what that feeling is and sort of, you know, look at it as if you were observing a piece of art in the museum. You know, what is it that you notice when you look at a piece of art? You know, it's composition, it's color, it's lighting, it's angles, shadows, whatever. You can apply that same philosophy to dealing with the stuff that's going on in your life without being attached to it. Yeah, because, you know, if of all the people I've met since I've been involved in psychology, you know, of who say to me, um, as soon as I get rid of my self-doubt, then I'll be ready for a long-term committed relationship as soon as I get <laughs> as soon as I get rid of my anxiety then I'm gonna be have a public speaking career and get in front of get in front of crowds as soon as I get rid of my sadness um, then I'm gonna be able to finally be able to have a, a really good way of writing my memoir and I always say to them of when do you think this is gonna happen when do you think like your your brain's gonna stop being an ass to you and stop saying mean things to you and and just going to be your buddy and always agree with you. It's never going to happen. You'll never write those things. You'll never get in front of a crowd. And you'll never be in a relationship. It's just, it's part of the human condition. And the question is, when do these emotions have merit in terms of helping us lubricate the way to working towards the things that we care about? And the important thing is the goal should never be to feel more positive and negative. Because it's kind of like making the goal of your of getting a house is to have the temperature at the right level. It's, it's a thermos. Your emotions like a thermostat. They just give you an idea of what the heat is in the room right now. That's not something to strive towards. That's just some information about what's going on in the room. The question is, what direction do you want to go, and how do you start, and start moving that way, regardless of what the temperature is? Well, the train has left the station. I mean, you know, we're alive, we're breathing, and the, the world is, is going. It's moving. And I think that you make a very good point that if we wait for that perfect condition, it ain't ever going to happen. We'll be crippled by waiting for the right moment for takeoff. So we go, yeah. you know, we, 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 we go and we leap and, and we uh, learn the blessings of a skin knee and, and figure it out. You know, there, there's another thing I, I love to share with, with, with clients, you know, like we are building the plane as we're flying, you know, it's happening yeah. one way or another. That's the, that, that's the other bit of advice is making the smallest possible unit of movement towards what you care about. 
that's what you have to start doing. I mean, the building blocks for a fulfilling life are these moments where we take movement towards what we care about. And sometimes on the way, we catch happiness, and sometimes we don't. You know, I tell I mean, I always, I have, I have seven-year-olds. I just taught them how to ride a bike two years ago. And they still bring up, I love it because they still bring up the lessons that I told them, which is they can be so upset that they can't get up a hill, and yet they could still pedal or get off the bike and push the bike up the hill, even though they're upset and they're wiping away tears. And it's carried over two years later, they still talk about it, which is because I've said it so many times. It's okay to be upset. You could, trust me, there are plenty of times where I yelled and screamed. Don't get me wrong, I'm not the perfect parent. <laughs> Um, but in between those screams was me saying, you can move even though you're upset. And it's just, you know, it's just a cool lesson that even I have to be reminded over and over and over again. I can just be completely, completely overflowing with emotions and still move my hands, move my feet, write things down, face people, look them in the eye and do things. And that's, you know, that's it. Be trying and with all of the books that are written about trying to be happier, which means inherently feel better, feel less bad, it's just it's the wrong goal. It's the wrong, it's just, you can't do it. You, your hormones affect your mood. Temperature affects the mood. Circadian rhythm affects your mood. What spicy foods you eat affects your mood. So you can't control your mood. It's not a dial you have control over all the time. We are out of time. Dr. Todd Cashton, thank you for being with us. I want to give your contact information once again, www.toddcashton.com. On Twitter, and on Twitter, it's Todd Cashton. And on Facebook, Todd B. Cashton. And the book is The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. Thanks for being with us. And here is a parting thought. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought sold or traded happiness will never invite you to the party happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion purpose place and meaning thanks for joining us on harvesting happiness talk radio and thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week have a great day thanks for joining us on harvesting happiness talk radio with lisa cypress cayman Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on TogiNet Radio. Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the TogiNet Radio Network.